Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. This week's episode features Nick Clegg, Facebook's new global affairs and PR chief. He sat down with me Monday for his first public interview since taking over the job. We taped the interview in front of a live audience of about 200 people in Brussels' Bibliothèque Solvay. The context was Clegg announcing a string of measures to boost transparency in political and issues-based advertising on the platform and an oversight board for content. Along with Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg, Clegg has been on a European tour over the past two weeks trying to sell the message that Facebook is changing for the better on elections, privacy and other issues. Have a listen and then also stick around for the podcast panel who rate Facebook's efforts as well as discussing the resolution of the Macedonia name issue and the Swedish foreign minister's admission that she can't forgive the British government for how it's handled Brexit. Now it's time for Nick Clegg. It'd be really easy to just pile on with the first question. I think you've been getting it a lot, but I'm a contrarian. So I thought I might ask you something that you might want from others. So starting with the idea that we're in a mess with democracy. Facebook is in a bit of a mess too, but it's bigger than Facebook. So you've kind of explained the bits that you're going to own and what you're doing in the speech. What is your ask of ministers, of intelligence agencies, of electoral authorities because I bet they haven't been perfect either. So what do you need from them to do the job that you've just promised in that speech? Well, at the end of the day, you know, they're the, they're the folk who, in a, in a democracy anyway, um, are the legitimate powers that be who set the rules for how our elections work. I mean, it isn't for a private company like Facebook. I'm big to, to, to become a sort of surrogate for electoral commissions or electoral yeah. law or, or voter registration or, you know, and so on and so forth. And so I think, I do want to stress, I, I announced today, for instance, some really important and very granular new controls, the likes of which have never operated before on this scale, to make sure that people who pay for political ads or ads where maybe they're mischievously trying to stir the pot on emotive issues like immigration in the run-up to the European elections have to go through hoops that we have set. They've got to be authorised, they've got to be checked, they've got to have a, have a disclaimer, and they'll then have their ads put in, a, in, a, in an archive for everyone to see. But you like government to but, set but here's, more but here's of the, the point. road rules. Here's the point. We, that, that should be something that a company like Facebook is doing because the rules have been set by democratically elected governments in, 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 in a union like the European Union. And I hope that gap 
in which that Facebook, in a sense, is now not... I mean, it was always a technological innovator, but Facebook is now a sort of policy innovator and almost a regulatory innovator. And I don't think that's a comfortable place for a no. private company to be. So I actually rather look forward to the day that... Let's, my ideal hope would be, let's say the stuff I've announced today, they're not perfect. It's not going to be the end of the, 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 the story on how to manage the online phenomenon of online political advertising at election time. But I hope that governments and regulators will be able to use those tools to develop their own rules so that in future, instead of making up those rules ourselves, companies like Facebook are implementing and abiding by rules set by others. And intelligence and security services, is there some kind of hotline when they identify some new group yeah. that is going to be explosive or violent or dangerous? Can they get on the, the phone to you and shut it down? Yeah, I mean, look, one of the first, as it happens, uh, one of the first times I came across some of these big American tech companies in any detail, funny enough, was when I was a deputy prime minister in the British government. Uh, where, of course, as we all know, the, the, the intelligence authorities rely very heavily on telecoms companies, social media companies, and others to cooperate under the rule of law and obviously all the rest of it. And this is a very important relationship. My, my, my sense is that that relationship is stronger in some countries than it is in others. But, you know, I think, again, in the spirit of candor, you know, you mentioned 2016. In the 2016 US presidential election, where you hear lots of people now sort of assuming that everybody knew the Russians were interfering. No one knew at the time. The spooks didn't know. The government didn't know. The media didn't know. Facebook didn't know. You know but, this but, is... the, but the real question is that you've got those lines of communications yeah. open now. Yes. We, we can learn from the yes. past, but we shouldn't yes. repeat them. Yes, yep. of course. Now, on political ads, it's my understanding that you basically lose money on political advertising. I'd say that Facebook's lost reputation via its connection to political advertising. And there's obviously a free speech argument about allowing it. But my question is, wouldn't it be better to simply say, let's get out of it? We'll yeah. give up that little bit of money and we will clean up our reputation by being separate from that. Sure, you're right. There's no, there's no commercial incentive to... In fact, it's an, you know, this whole machinery that I've talked about now is, is not... I mean, it might sound easy in a few lines in a speech, but there's a huge amount of complexity and expense behind it all in terms of human endeavour and, and the, 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 um, uh, the computing... Um, expertise associated with it. So it's not, there's no commercial incentive to do it. I mean, look, I think there are two things. One is a, actually, one is a, I'll be very, very kind of, one is a purely practical thing, because I have to say, when I arrived at Facebook, I had a sort of similar instinct. I said, let's just get out of this. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a thankless task. Everyone either says you're doing too much or doing too little. You're either taking too much down or leaving too much up or, you know. Um, but of course, if you were to block political ads, you'd need to develop a huge infrastructure to build those mm. walls, and you need to define yep. what you're keeping out. But so, you're doing that anyway by yeah, asking people to yeah, identify yeah. themselves and be yeah. paid by an but so what I, but, no, so what I mean is it's not a, it's not a cost-free option mm -hmm. to decide to exclude something, to luckily, exclude something from Luckily, you make billions of dollars a year. Yeah, no, no, agreed. No, this is not a pounds and pence thing. No, the genuine, uh, and we discussed this at length, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Cheryl were very involved in it, it, is exactly as you say, which is how can you claim that you are in favour of an open world, which is in a sense the guiding spirit of social media, it's all about people being able to say what they like, when they like, to whom they like and connecting with each other and supporting causes they want and so on, and not being told what to think and do and so on, how can you do that and at the same time not allow people to use your platform's in a legitimate way to participate in and appeal to, to voters. So It's kind of, of existential in a way. I mean, you are the greatest convening power on earth. You've created the biggest community that's ever existed. And I guess it gets down to 
would Facebook ever accept a slightly narrower mission? I mean, bringing people together, you know, you can, you can come together for a lot of reasons. You can do discomforting, dangerous, or violent sure. things when you come together. But maybe it's about so being a bit a, narrower and a bit less philosophy. Yeah, that's an interesting way you put it. So I, I think there is a narrowing going on already. <clears throat> so if you look at the, if you look at the uh, huge volume of material and content, which is now removed every day by Facebook because it contravenes the community standards on hate, violence, division, and so on, uh, and the stuff that's coming down. I, I alluded earlier to the decision we took the week before last on these Russian-related pages and so on. The million, the million, I mean, it's extraordinary, the million fake accounts, which we take down before they're even registered every day. I think you could say, actually, that we're hardening, maybe the better way is we're hardening the parameters mm-hmm. in which acceptable content is deemed to, you know, to, to, to be legitimate. By the way, I think we've got a, a lot more work to do, for instance, on the thing that's come to light tragically in Britain in recent days about... Uh, images of self-harm and, and so on. Um, that's an area where I now strongly anticipate we will narrow the, the funnel. So I think in terms of the content, there has been a narrowing going on, but that has to be married, as you say, with a, with a belief in the, in, the, in, the sort of, in, the, in the virtue, which is sometimes uncomfortable, because people, if you give people freedom, and if you hold up a mirror to humanity with 2.6 billion people on it, you see good stuff, you see bad stuff, you see beautiful stuff, you see tragic stuff. You see vile stuff and you see wonderful stuff. That, you know, of course you do. How you set the boundaries, I think a company like Facebook, my experience, is sincerely trying to grapple with it. But boy, is that something that you need also, particularly democratically elected governments, to play their role. And I, I hope what we can move beyond, at the moment, there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of finger-waving and sort of, you know, there's a lot of recriminations. And a lot of it, no doubt, has been elicited because of Facebook's own mistakes. But I really think we're only going to get out of this over the next five or ten years and serve society at large if the, where those boundaries are set is, is a collaborative exercise. Mm-hmm. And it gets a bit to the heart about how serious you are with that, that change of heart yeah. in, in regulation, where some of it must obviously be a little bit tactical in terms of survival, and then there's the, the, the genuine efforts that people in the company seem to be making around some of this stuff. I guess it also gets to that question of, uh, are you just a platform or are you something else? Yep. Now, the journalists in the room or other people where I'm from might want you to say, look, we're a full-on publishing company. I'm not suggesting you go that far. Mm. But one analogy I'd bring up is a bit like with money laundering or dodgy money. You, know, yep. you could call banks a platform, but actually the way regulation has changed in recent years is it's about know your customer. If there's dodgy money going through the bank, the bank still has some yep. level of responsibility. How much do you think that that way of thinking about regulation is getting embedded in Facebook? Is it just you guys on comms, or is it starting to move into engineering and other parts of the company? So um, I, th- I think you're right to characterize it, like all these things, as, as, a, sort of, as a sort of journey, which is evolving. So uh, you're right. The, the, early, the early sort of... I hope I'm not being facetious here. The early slightly sort of, yeah, utopian, libertarian, all regulation is wrong kind of spirit that clearly prevailed in the early, heady days of the Silicon Valley boom. Until about January 2018. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's all giving way to something quite new. And um, I I don't, I certainly not in my short time there, I haven't encountered anyone serious and thoughtful in Silicon Valley who thinks it's sort of sustainable to say that, you know, it's a completely sort of hands-off approach, got no responsibility. And it's not, by the way, just comms people or people saying this. You can see it in the actions. I mean, otherwise, you wouldn't be employing 30, as they are now, 30,000 people to monitor 
and take down vast amounts of... I mean, by the way, I make a prediction. I make a prediction that the debate today, which is understandably is a lot about why do platforms like Facebook leave XYZ up on the platform, might very easily topple into exactly those same people saying, why are you taking so much down? Uh, because a huge amount is coming down. I think, it's, and oddly enough, it's almost the untold story. Um, because it's often, there's always a time lag between debates, solutions, and then kind of people catching up with changed realities. So I think, I think Facebook clearly, by its actions, accepts that it doesn't have... Of course, it has a deep responsibility. The question is, is it the same responsibility as, let's say, an editor who can literally handpick whatever adjective and adverb appears in her or his newspaper? Well, it clearly is not the same. No. Clearly but that's the same. part of about the velocity you yeah. created. It well, didn't, no, 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 it didn't no, no, happen. You no, built no, no, a system. Well, hang on. It, it's, sure, it's scale, absolutely. It, of course, vast scale. But crucially, it's because it is the, the content is a voluntary act by individuals deciding how they want to yes. express themselves and what they want to say to each other and how they want to connect with families and friends. Mm-hmm. And da, da, da. I mean, that, that is not a controlled process, and nor indeed should it, should it ever be. So clearly it, it's lying somewhere between. I don't know yeah. what adjective or noun to apply to it, but it is clearly something which is well beyond that hands-off yeah. philosophy, but not analogous to a completely different way of producing information, which is a highly curated centrally edited form of publication. Mm -hmm. It isn't. It's a whole point about social media, which is why it unsettles people, because it's raucous. It's it's unpredictable. It depends on what millions of people choose to do, and Mm -hmm. that's why some people don't like it. And then some people say, oh, I love the fact that Facebook, you know, people organised a Me Too protest on Facebook, and they say, oh, but I hate the fact that on Facebook they they organised Gilets Jaunes protest. You know, that's the whole point. You can't control how people use those those platforms to communicate with each other. But a bit about what you design now, um, going back to that point about the engineers. I think one of the reasons why you must have chosen to base yourself in Menlo Park is that that's the heart of the action. The engineers are gods. So what are you doing to bring engineer side and politically aware side of Facebook together so that you are on the same page and you're not caught out again? When I fly back to California tomorrow, I look forward to telling my engineering friends that they are gods, in your view. They'll be delighted. Um, we'll bring them back. Actually, here's another question yes. to add on to the pile. Would you consider doing things like bringing a bunch of yes. them here to Brussels yes. or go to Myanmar D- yes. so they can see the real-world implications? Well, they've done of that, they but do. I certainly... Uh, certainly uh, no, mm-hmm. Myanmar, of course. Um, absolutely. Um, but I, actually, funny enough, I strongly agree with you. I, and and um, I've already approached a number of the key engineers to say, look, because... This is highly complex stuff. I'm not, a, I'm not an engineer. I'm not going to pretend that I know exactly. I've tried over the last few months to learn as much as I can sort of how it works under the bonnet. And um, some of it is astonishingly ingenious. Some of it is actually more mundane than you might expect. And I, I do think it would be very, very helpful, maybe after the European elections and after the European Commission has been formed, if, if decision-makers here find it helpful, not just to hear to, from folk like me, but you're quite right, from folk who really are in the engine room, so that if and as, or rather when, new regulation is developed, people understand how it relates to the, to the pistons and the, and, the, and the levers in the, in the engine room. Because I, I think sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, it's like ships passing in the night. About this unifying of the data yeah. architecture or the merging of Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram uh, data. Now, you and Cheryl have been on a tour, a bit of explaining, a bit of apologizing over the last week. And I think it was received fairly well in audiences in Davos. But then a lot of us wake up on Friday morning and we read a story in the New York Times, which, you know, makes people wonder why they weren't 
being told something like that in the meetings they had last week. And I mentioned it in my opening remarks, but Tommaso Valetti, who is the chief competition economist here in Brussels, he essentially called you a bunch of liars. So what's your view on that? And doesn't he have a point? I mean, you, you did say you weren't going to do that when WhatsApp and Facebook merged a few years ago. So I don't... Well, I don't... No, I don't think any, I don't think any undertakings were taken when that case uh, and that fine happened a few uh, years ago. I don't think any under, undertakings were taken not to um, do what they called unified messaging. I, I don't know who this chap is, and I don't know why he thinks it's lying. I, I, I wonder whether he... I don't know how he can judge, given that there's no... There's no he, advised sort of fixed on the ca- he advised on the case. Oh, on that case. Okay, well, that case was settled, as you know, uh, then. Look, it's, it's much, much more simple than some of that, dare I say it, slightly heated language suggests. What Mark Zuckerberg has said and what appeared in the New York Times is something that I bet you many of you say to your friends, which is that people are increasingly using lots of different messaging apps. You use WhatsApp, you use iMessage, you use Messenger and so on. And... It's an incredibly simple view that he has that over time people will want to be able to send messages from one messaging app to another. Mm-hmm. Literally, that's it. That's it. It is so early days. We haven't worked up how that would work, whether it's workable, what regulators may or may not think about it before they jump to any conclusions, uh, what you'd need to do, uh, pointing back now to the clever engineers that we're going to, we're going to ship over in an aeroplane... Uh, later this year to Brussels, you know, how you make that work in, in, the, in the kind of uh, the data uh, infrastructure, you know, how, mu- how much uh, data integration you need between them, all of those, all of those things. Um, so I, I, I'm afraid I can't give you much more colour than simply to, to state what I just know to be true, having spoken to him about it, is that Mark Zuckerberg just personally thinks, firstly, that as is evidence from the sort of figures, that private messaging is becoming increasingly popular. Not exactly as an alternative, but certainly as a step... encryption is part of this. I mean, I'll give you points for that. If it's all going to be encrypted, that is a bonus. Encryption uh, poses challenges, particularly to to do with law enforcement issues, but is 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 a fantastic, of course, guarantee of privacy for people who... Who use encrypted encrypted services? So his instinct is just really quite a just a simple one, which is look over time. Given that more and more people are using a plethora of messaging apps, and that Facebook has some, but by no means all of the of the leading messaging apps, we've got to find ways of making it easier for people to communicate across that. That's kind of that's kind of it. What you might be doing, or what are you doing, to keep Facebook staff on board with your current transformation? And I make the point for two reasons. One, I'm, I'm a user who tried to see, could I go without Facebook in January for my New Year's resolution? It's very difficult. I'm not even allowed to delete Messenger unless I want to give up the whole account. And Mark Zuckerberg obviously is in a position of great control inside the company. So people who want to express backlash or protest, limited room for maneuver there, but it's much harder to keep staff on board. And we've seen Google face protests within their organization about some decisions they've made. So what are you doing to make sure staff aren't the tipping point against you? I'm not, I, I, I mean, I, may, may, I don't think there's a... I don't, it doesn't feel to me, anyway, when I, when I work in the, in the shiny offices in Menlo Park as if there's a sort of insurrection brewing. I must say, it doesn't feel like that at all. Um, but I think, of course, a lot of people... I think people... I mean, look, employees are human beings, and they, 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 they read a lot of the controversy swirling around Facebook, and some of them find that tough. And, you know, I, 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 
they, they wouldn't be human if they, if they didn't. I just think the key thing is that people should feel internally, but much more importantly externally, that however much criticism may sometimes be legitimately aimed at Facebook, you know, there are now, and one can argue whether they should have started earlier, perhaps they should, but there are now very concerted attempts to try and match the commercial and technical success of Facebook with the, with the duties and responsibilities that come with that success. And, and, and I hope, through actions, not through words, not through speeches, but through actions, that, that better balance between sort of freedom and responsibility will be better demonstrated. I think that would be something which employees, as much as people outside Facebook, would, would appreciate. Nick Clegg, thank you very much for thank your you. time. Thank you. You are listening to Facebook's Nick Clegg. Next up, the podcast panel. And I'm now welcoming back the podcast panel, the Brussels Brains Trust of Lena Rabarus and Alva Finn back to the office. Hello, ladies. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Alba. A snowy hello. And a happy hello. We're so excited because Lena has bought these quiche slash pizza combos, including <laughs> vegan options for Alva, and we're just devouring them. And so you've got us in a very good mood. You today, should tell basically. people where they are. It's from uh, Goût and Saveur in uh, Rue Franklin. Oh. In Brussels. Yeah. In Brussels, yeah. Sorry, rest of, of world Rubble. listeners. Uh, but if you come to Brussels, we'll um, be very happy to treat you. Now... Also in good news, we were going to start with a thumbs up this week, which was progress on the Macedonia name deal, which should allow a normalization of relations for what I guess is now called North Macedonia mm. with the rest of the world. So that's got to be good news. Uh, who do we think should be getting some credit for that progress? Everybody should get credit. I was very struck recently when I went to visit the Nobel Peace Prize Museum that, you know, America, the US, often gets peace prizes for its role in, in a lot of things. And it is true, they do play a big role. But I think equally, the EU has put quite a lot of its weight behind it. We know that in the run-up to the referendum that lots of prime ministers of member states went to Macedonia to talk about this. So well, I think... the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, mm, as yeah, it was or at the time. North, yeah, <laughs> North Macedonia. But, you know, these name change things, I think to other people, it's difficult to understand. But for me, coming from Ireland, and there's a lot of politics around whether you know or not you call um, Northern Ireland the North or Northern Ireland. So it does have this kind of real emotional value to people in Greece and in the in Firearm and now North Macedonia. So to make a change like that happen takes a lot of political will. So some people are saying it's up to the US, it's up to the EU. It's up to all parties. It's up to the Macedonians, it's up to the Greeks, it's up to the EU, it's up to the US. But yeah, I think let's apportion to everybody a little bit of thanks. How about you, Lena? I'm kind of leaning on saying that Alexis Tsipras, the Greek left-wing prime minister, if he hadn't really pushed this, it might never have gotten the ball rolling. Certainly. It takes a true visionary and a true leader and a people's leader to be persistent and to continue and use all sorts of diplomacy. I think the EU in this regard came at the end to take a bit of a credit and to be applauded. But soft diplomacy sometimes works. 
Economic diplomacy is, of course, what is needed now. And the lack of an, a common EU foreign policy always puts the EU in a, in a questioning position if they really had a say or they really pushed for it. So I, I do think it's the civil society. I think it's the newly democratic visionary leaders that people need in Europe to come. But And is it a signal that we might be able to unlock some other problems in the Balkans? You know, to me, this strikes as a mature response to obviously a very locally sensitive, difficult issue. But if you look at the big picture, it's the obviously mature way forward. So I wonder if that it becomes a template then for some other issues, Kosovo, Serbia, for example. Of course, otherwise Russia will be definitely in there. And this is something neither the EU, neither the US are in favor. And of course, it's only wise. This is part of the EU policy to bring more and more for their enlargement to plan. So I hope this is a good example to engage with other countries and other regional conflicts. Now, I thought we might debate a little story I wrote yesterday, just because it's such a perfect microcosm of feelings around Brexit. And if you hadn't caught it already, Margaret Wallström, who is the Swedish foreign minister, we were talking together at a foreign policy conference in Helsinki in Finland. Uh, it's the first time I've ever had a foreign minister as my warm-up act at a conference. So thank you for that, Minister Wallström. And she was talking about Brexit, and she was really wearing her heart on her sleeve, and she said that she couldn't forgive successive British governments, so governments, not the people, for Brexit and how they'd handled it. And she said it was just such an dangerous unleashing of sort of base political spirits, the fact that they didn't prepare the referendum in any great detail and everything that's happened since. And obviously that was something where if you are a lever, you're kind of outraged that someone from Sweden would talk about your country in that way. And if you are a Remainer, it's kind of like, go Sweden, go Margaret Wallström. And I was just wondering what your reaction was to that sort of discussion. Is what she said, she said British governments are not the British. She didn't actually say that, but that is what she meant. Yeah, because I've seen it quoted as, you know, she can never forgive the British, which if that's the case, then it's just a poor choice of words, which happens to us all, I think. But I think any foreign minister in the EU should be very wary of what they say about Brexit in the media, because the British media will devour you. They'll take your words and they'll spin it into something that is very much in support of Brexit. So you never want your words to be taken and then for people to finger point and say, you know, this is why we should leave Europe because this Swedish foreign minister who knows nothing about us should have absolutely no say and role and be talking about us. So, yeah, but it is true. I think it's also a wake-up call and it's happening at the exact same time um, as we were having this vote about the amendments to the withdrawal bill. And I thought that was very interesting as well because what came back from that was... They rejected amendments to delay Brexit, but yet they want Theresa May to return. And then you have the foreign minister of Sweden giving a reality check. And it's just so interesting that the two things happen in parallel. And she wasn't the only one. For two weeks now, you've had everyone from the Dutch prime minister to the Lithuanians to the Estonians to a bunch of other ministers I spoke to in Davos. Like, they all ramped up the rhetoric. They kind of they've kind of had it up to their necks in how the Brits are behaving, basically, and they don't even hold back anymore. 
But they are all humans. At the end, these are feelings. And many of them, they have put an effort in order to make this peace project Europe work together and continue to working together. It's an international insult for Europe that UK is leaving, really. I mean, and they are trying as much as possible now. They finished with the technical part. They're trying on the emotional part, I think, to talk to the average people to change their mind. But no, I, I don't think it's, it's a bad thing. She just shared her what she her heart is, is saying to her. And it's human. Another quick temperature test before we wrap up. Facebook has obviously been on a big tour across Europe trying to roll out a bunch of safeguards of how its election-related content is going to be managed. It's also been dogged by controversy everywhere it's gone. You've had the European competition chief economists say that they're a bunch of liars for promising that they wouldn't unify things like WhatsApp and Facebook data when the two companies were merged, and now it turns out that they're looking at it. There have been problems with Instagram promoting images of self-harm towards teenagers. And then the latest one to come out today, in fact, I think there's more, but the, the one on the top of my head, is that Facebook was paying people, including teenagers, to hand over all of their data to kind of like be monitored and see how they behave when they're online. And it says there were parental consent forms signed, but is it a good look? Are you buying the Facebook transformation? I don't think so. <laughs> Unless one day it will cost a lot of losses for their shareholders and they will be the people who will decide to either change the management, change the direction. Uh, but They can't uh, though because Mark Zuckerberg, Mark. He's, he, he retains control. Control, yeah. But I don't buy it as an average citizen. As a, as a no, I, I think it's all existing there to, to read the data. And they have maybe to simplify their message on what their measures they are making. Because when they update their privacy things, honestly, I don't read it because it's so long. It's so complicated. So yeah. I just well, I accept. On the elections, they're going to do things like require that you say authorized by and paid by on any advertisement. And they're going to extend something that already exists in the US where you can see everyone who buys political and issue based ads and so you can you can look at who is mm. doing the influencing if you spend the time and the effort mm. to dive exactly. in yeah i mean they should have also the, like a font size requirement there because sometimes those things are so minuscule that you would need a microscope to see it so i hope that comes along with actual real guidelines about how legible these things need to be they could even put it in you know that when you're you're saying who posts things we obviously know that you know if i post something it says Alva Finn posted something, but can we have that for ads as well? I don't know. It needs to be very, very clear when something is a political advert. I'll believe that when I see it from Facebook. But I think the other thing is that and I've had some experience with social media and trying to change things around what goes up online, particularly targeted at children, and they just don't have the workforce to do it. So, yeah, previously I used to work at a mental health organization and people reached out to us to say, you know, how can we reach teenagers who are looking at things online that are potentially traumatic or if they're about ways to you know eat less these kind of things and they just didn't have good solutions and it's very difficult because it's difficult to monitor everything that goes up online so yeah and I will that's also the thing it's very difficult but I guess where I don't give them a free pass is they do have billions of dollars in profit to invest into hiring more people or they could roll out some of these things slower which is not in the nature of a lot of tech companies to just slow it down. Mm. But they kind of also seem to want us to feel sorry for them, that it's such a difficult task. Oh. And 
Yeah, I don't know if I go that far. I don't feel sorry for them, honestly. <laughs> they can say no to a client, no? Well, it's so not they- just about that. It's also about people putting up strange things themselves, you know, things that are worrying and how do you monitor that? I remember we were working with one and this little thing popped up if you were showing strange behaviour that might indicate that you had maybe a mental health problem. A little thing would pop up to all of these numbers like hotlines that you could ring for mental health but they were all based in the US and you know to me I was just thinking a little bit more thought for your you know all of the customers that you have that live elsewhere so that's just one Isn't example. Isn't that a of- perfect dilemma where you have to allow Facebook or others to track you more in order to give you numbers that would be more appropriate or you can keep your privacy and sort of shuffle off down the road to suicide. But we worked with them to map that. And then I think the, the, I don't work there anymore, but the map has now been published and that will be available to all of the people who use this social media. Mm-hmm. But they need people to say to them, things have to change and you just can't provide only numbers for the US when almost half of your yeah. customers live elsewhere. I think they're getting some of that message everywhere they go these days. Well, Alva, Lena, thank you so much for coming back in for another panel. We're getting close to 100 episodes now. We really appreciate it. And if you haven't already joined our community, go to politico.eu forward slash registration and tick the EU confidential box or subscribe wherever you found the podcast. And as always, I want to thank our team that makes EU confidential possible. It's a team effort. So thanks to Eddie Wax, Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.